Hey there, and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. This podcast is all about providing clarity, insight, and encouragement for life and mission. And my name's Aaron Sotomayor, and I'm going to be your host. Today, we have the honor to have with us on the podcast, Hank Dunn. Hank, I came across his name and his resources. Uh, as many of you might know, my mom passed away um, in early November, and one of my visits back to see her and my dad in October uh, before she passed. We were sitting down. I saw this book laying beside the table in the the living room and um, it caught my eye. And I said, Mom, you know, what's what's this about? And she said, oh, that's a book that they gave us um, at the hospital. It's Hard Choices for Loving People. And we began to sit and talk about it. And in one of our last conversations I had um, with my mom, we were talking about this and how this book and resource provided some framework for her just to, you know, make those, she had a lot of her decisions were already in place, but she just wanted to to clarify them once again. It gave us, me and her, some language as I read the book. It gave us some language just to understand exactly what she wanted when it came to those end stages of life. She fought a a long battle with cancer, a valiant battle, uh, and at the same time, we wanted to honor her when it came closer to the the end stages of life and what she wanted. Did she want CPR? Did she want uh, tubes and, and different things? And it allowed us to, to know how to care for our mom um, in the way that she wanted to be cared for. And so it was very valuable. So I reached out to Hank. He agreed to be on the podcast. And I, I think this is a great conversation. I know living overseas, he'll, he'll make some comments or some suggestions. This the idea of being far away when your parents are sick. And the majority of us, that's it's going to be part of life that our parents will, um, our elderly parents will get older. They'll get, you know, they move towards those end stages of life. And I believe this resources helps frame and gives language to conversations to help us get past some of the awkwardness. It's a, at least in my upbringing, death and dying is not something that, you know, brings great joy and you love talking about. But at the same time, uh, we do want to honor our loved ones. And uh, I believe this resource provides a um, some language around that to have those conversations. So, so yeah, just great conversation. I think you will... Um, you will enjoy it. Do want to ask you to continue to send in your questions for Back Channel with Foth. That's where we sit down with Dick Foth and get to learn from him. Also want to ask you to continue to subscribe to the podcast. I know the podcast I subscribe to are the ones I listen to. Well, there's no time better than now to get started. So here we go. Greetings and welcome back to the Clarity Podcast. So excited to be here with a new friend of the podcast, Hank Dunn. Hank, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Um, as we were sharing just before we jumped in, I came across your your books. Um, as many of the listeners know, my mom has has uh, fought a battle with um, stage four cancer and recently passed away. And one of the last conversations I had with her before before I left uh, Wally Ford, West Virginia, was you need to have this gentleman on the podcast. Um, his book was valuable to um, your father and I and um, believe that it would be a great conversation. So thank you for being on the podcast and so excited. Um, I feel like I've done research on you. I feel like I know you a little bit. Will you share a little <laughs> bit about yourself? Um, sure. Before I start peppering you with questions, okay, yeah, thanks. That's a, a wonderful endorsement, by the way, for your mother to have been touched by my book. Uh, uh, the short bio is: uh, I grew up in Florida, went to University of Florida, and uh, actually was very involved in uh, Campus Crusade for Christ there, uh, now known as Crew, um, and. Went on to seminary. Uh, I went to the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville and ordained 
Southern Baptist, served the church in Georgia for five years as a youth minister. Loved it, but uh, felt a call to pull up stakes, and we moved to Washington, D.C., and became part of a Church of the Savior, which is a very unique ecumenical church in Washington. And um, I was doing inner-city work for five years, four years, and uh, we lost our funding, the organization I was working for, and I was out of a job. Hmm. And um, uh, the pastor of the church got a call from owner of a nursing home out in uh, Fairfax, Virginia, said, we, we need a chaplain. Do you know anybody looking for work? <laughs> and well, bless his heart. He said, Hank. And so I went out and interviewed. I'd never considered chaplaincy. I really had no training for it. But I like the people. It yeah. seemed like a pretty good, uh, I'll try it. So it was half time to start with. And um, after six months, I loved it so much, I asked if we could do it full-time. And so it's a situation where uh, a, my call found me. Yeah, <laughs> it, yeah, very it, uh, uh, You know, I, uh, I, I would say I was called into a healthcare chaplaincy, but uh, only after I started doing it did I know yeah. that. So yeah, it's, good. you know, it's a little turning the idea of call a little bit on its head. Yeah. So that that's, that's the short version of how I got into this, and then um, what happened in Virginia at the time that I started, which was 1983, Virginia passed a Natural Death Act, which um, put in the law that you could refuse treatment and you could do a living will. Okay. And, um, you know, you could always do that, but now it's in the law in Virginia, and our nursing home was very progressive. Um it was a for-profit family-owned nursing home, but they always wanted to have a chaplain. And they were very committed Christians themselves that were the owners. And so nursing homes were not required to have a chaplain, but they mm. um, they wanted to. So anyway, so the Natural Death Act happened, and, and we formed an ethics committee. And it was me and a lawyer and a, the doc and a medical director and nurses and Social workers, all that, all the typical ethics committee type thing that we uh, said, Virginians now have this right to advance directive and refuse treatment. What are we going to do about it? And we said, well, we're going to tell everybody in our nursing home about it. And Hank, we want you to do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I had what had happened. I had just moved from half time to full time. And I'm sure they're thinking, well, what's he going to do with all his time? <laughs> well, so. Here I was, brand new, knew so little. I started doing reading on this and, of course, talking to the nurses. They were just, they helped me so much. And I started talking to patients and families about CPR, about feeding tubes, about living wells. And I basically just learned doing this. And um, eventually I wrote a little booklet just for the residents at our nursing home. I called it Hard Choices for Loving People. And the first edition came out in 1990. Hmm. And long story short, it's now in the sixth edition, and we've sold uh, over four million copies of it. And your your mother received one. Uh, The the hospice she was with and and the panhandle of 
West Virginia were always good friends of mine. They had me out to speak several times and yeah. bought my book and still bought my book by the boatload. So, yeah. so that's the story of, of how the book got started. And, um, um, I can probably, uh, I, I was thinking about this podcast, uh, our ten, intended audience here. Um, and one of the things in, um, uh, Aaron, we were just chatting about, you know, it's it's really hard mm. caring for parents long distance. And I'm yeah. I'm guessing that's most of what yeah. your listeners are dealing with. Yeah. As a matter of fact, I have I have a little thing. Um when I do my lectures, I have some slides of what I call Hank's theorems. Okay. These are things I think are true. And I and I think of you guys in relation to this. This is my second theorem, by the way. The ability to let go. This is talking about making end of life decisions and letting go of someone who's dying. The ability to let go increases as the emotional and geographical distance between the family member and the patient decreases. Hmm. And there's actually been some. There was uh, I found an article years ago, and they called it. The daughter from California syndrome. Okay. And here's how it plays out in, let's say, Northern Virginia, or where I was serving. You know, you have the daughter who lived there in Fairfax, Virginia. She was been caring for mom for years. She's got dementia. She had her in a home. Now she's in the nursing home, and she's failing. And uh, they want to not do CPR and and the daughter from California flies in her, for her once a year visit, like the missionaries fly home sure. to see if the family just once a year or whatever it is. Right. Anyway, the daughter flies in and says, "Oh, I love mom so much. You can't not do CPR on her. We, she, we're for life." Yeah. And and the daughter in Fairfax says, "Where have you been? I've been dealing with this day in and day out." for years hmm. and it's time to let go of mom hmm. so the research is it is harder for people who are not real close by to make these decisions hmm. and one of the things that uh, we found out in during covid um when people could not get into the icu because they because of covid they weren't letting people in the icu and families didn't have a real sense of what it was like for the patient Hmm. On a ventilator, yeah. you know, uh, being barely responsive, responsive at all, and to, to be able to see what it looked like, and I think that's part of the geographical problem. Is you folks on the mission field, you you, you just don't know what mom looks like now. Yeah. It's hard, and even with Zoom and stuff, you can try to share a little bit of what it looks like, or or FaceTime or whatever. But it's it's uh, it, it can be hard. Yeah. So the uh, emotional distance is as hard as it is. It's easier for a spouse to make a medical decision for a patient than it is for the child to make that decision, Interesting. or for for a cousin to do that. And um, yeah, I've seen it many times where a, a wife um, is calling the doc for an order, uh, yeah. a do not resuscitate, no CPR order, and the children don't agree. Hmm. And and this is 
in cases where CPR doesn't work, which yeah. we can we can talk about the treatments in just a second. But um, yeah, it, it uh, I, I, anecdotally I've seen it play out over the years, and and uh, so so these things for folks on the mission field and dealing with parents, aging parents, or even siblings, whatever, back home, it's hard. And uh, I'm sure you do the best you can, but it does help to make some visits and be able to see what's going on. Yeah. So, and you kind of to go off that, you're, you know, your book is making these hard choices for loving people. Um, and in that, you mentioned that it, it has little to do with medical, legal, or moral, uh, ethical aspects, but more this emotional and spiritual could you share just a little bit more about that? Um, just how that sometimes it, we think it's this, but what you're saying in reality, it's more that spiritual and emotional aspect. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you a story. I was the nursing home chaplain and we had a guy patient come to our nursing home and his only caregiver was his daughter. And he had advanced dementia. He, he couldn't involve, get involved in conversations of, about treatment decisions anyway he was real bad when he came in and and he uh, i looked on his chart and it was uh, he did not have a do not resuscitate order we called it a no cpr order in our, our nursing home and so um i would it was my job to talk to all the patients and families about this these decisions so uh he was in such bad shape i felt i really had to call her and talk, have this conversation sooner than later. And she listened and she seemed to understand and understood, yeah, that CPR wouldn't work for her dad. And so, well, he got worse and we sent him back to the hospital. And um, I went to the emergency room. Um, I, I, I went with him to the hospital, to the emergency room, waiting for the daughter to come there. And we had this conversation again about, do not resuscitate order. Because the doc had asked me when I came arrived at the ER with the patient, he says, well, what's his code status, which means what is he full code or right. no code or whatever. Anyway, um, so I talked to the daughter again. Well, I left. A couple of days later, they sent him back from the hospital. He's back at the nursing home, and he's still a full code. There's no mm. order on there. So I called her again, <laughs> and I started going through my spiel how CPR doesn't work for patients like your dad, and, it's, and our medical director recommends do not resuscitate orders. She stopped me. She says, wait a minute. I know what you're saying is true. And then she says, it's just so hard letting go. Hmm. Now, what happens with a lot of these um, treatment decisions is – we're having to let go of somebody we love. Hmm. And and it's symbolic. It's only symbolic. Being a full code, in other words, we're going to try to do everything to save their life. It's just symbol. It, hmm. it doesn't work. Hmm. You're not going to save their life. Hmm. Telling the doc, I want the order not to do CPR, it's hard because you're letting go of somebody you love. Yeah. And so um, it's just... That's the hard part is saying, letting go and saying goodbye to the people you love. And these decisions become symbols for holding on, whether it's to do CPR or put a feeding tube in somebody that's not going to work, um, send somebody to the hospital and it's not going to help them again. 
So, um, and the emotional side is, 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 you know, uh, the grief. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my mom. Yeah. I'm losing my dad, whatever. So that's that in my view, of course, this, I'm, I'm, I'm a chaplain and I tend to look for spiritual things. So, yeah. uh, it's kept me in, in a job for 30 something years. So, but anyway, um, but, uh, a lot of, um, docs and nurses that agree with that. As a matter of fact, we had a, uh, I had a, I used to be self-published. I'm published by uh, now a publisher down in Florida, uh, Quality of Life Publishing. But um, I used to be self-published, and we got a call one time from a doctor somewhere. I can't even remember. He says, uh, I head up a palliative care team here at our hospital, and we would like, uh, we'll pay you, but we'd like to just reproduce the first chapter of your book, which is on CPR, hmm. and be able to hand that to patients and families. And I said, well, talk to your team, tell me, give me a proposal, what you want to do, and I'll, I'll think about it. Well, a couple of weeks later, he called me back, and um, he, he had talked to the team, and they didn't want to separate that one chapter. And in the end of my Hard Choices for Loving People book, I spend, I don't know, 10, 12 pages talking about the uh, emergency um Talking about the emotional and spiritual issues of people letting go at the end of life. So that uh, is a significant part of that book. And what his team told him was that um, you can't separate these. Hmm. You can't separate the, the CPR decision from can I let go hmm. um, spiritual, emotional issues. So it, it's it's very tightly uh together these these two two aspects of the medical side and the emotional spiritual side yeah that's good good you mentioned there palliative care so palliative care hospice care um, could and honestly as we've walked through this process as a family it's been hard for us to kind of nail that your book helps with that um very much but before that before reading that it was hard for me to understand and I'm a nurse practitioner I mean I've lived in the medical world for a lot of years um but it was hard for for me to understand until your book delineates it but would you share that will you share about that cuz you mentioned it what's the difference between palliative care and okay, sure. and what that looks like yeah uh, palliative care folks to, they 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 get all uh, their hackles up when you say oh, palliative <laughs> care. Oh, that's just hospice light. Well, hospice and palliative care are different. They're very similar. Okay. And, uh, the goals are very similar, and that is they're there to alleviate any pain and suffering that the patient might be having to try to address all the issues. Palliative care, you'll find it in a lot of hospitals will have a palliative care doc or palliative care unit even. Um, you can be in palliative care while you're still trying to get curative treatment. In other words, somebody uh, has cancer and they're getting treatment, and um, the palliative care team specializes in alleviating the uncomfortable symptoms, okay. pain, um, nausea, constipation, things like that, that can go along with the treatment. But the palliative care specialists specialize in uh, alleviating the symptoms. Uh, hospice, at least in the United States, um, under the Medicare hospice benefit, 
uh, a patient has to be judged in the last six months of life. Okay. And the, the Medicare benefit can kick in then. And you have to give up on curative treatment hmm. for, for your disease. So no longer getting chemo or radiation to try to cure the cancer. Um, sometimes you, you find what they call palliative radiation. In other words, just to shrink a tumor. Not, we know we're not going to get it to go away. But, right. um, but anyway, hospice basically is you're, giving, you're, you're letting go of the curative treatment and are under the special hospice benefit. And that's where nurse, doctor, social worker, chaplain, nurses aide, they're all part of the team that can come into your home and help a patient as they're dying. Palliative care, um, you don't have to have that six-month diagnosis. You could be years away from uh, dying, and uh, but you need special palliative treatment uh, to relieve the relieve the symptoms. Yeah. So it's 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 basically two different things. It's similar, and a lot of people in palliative care transition on to hospice okay. when they they're trying to cure the disease, no longer working. Um, so it's close, and a lot of a lot of hospices change their name. By the way, to, uh, you know, to hospice and palliative care that they do both. Okay. So. Anyway, but it, it is different, uh, but similar. Yeah. You mentioned uh, hospice and Medicare benefit. Is, is palliative care on Medicare benefit too? or just... That's a very good question. I'm not an expert on that part. Uh-huh. Um, there are, I do know people are getting palliative care covered in some way. And uh-huh. Uh, there's a whole discussion in the palliative care community about how to code things so that you'll get yeah. paid. Sure. Uh, it's it's true. I mean, it's yeah. it's necessary for docs to spend their time with people. They're going to get paid for it. So um, it's not part of the hospice benefit sure. uh, with Medicare. It would be under regular Medicare or, or even Medicare Advantage, but um, uh, it's covered in different ways. Yeah. You mentioned there that idea of families beginning to to process in the in the the person themselves um, away from curing to maybe more realistic, meaningful goals. Um, how have you seen that play out? And how is that a conversation that people have, or is that just kind of assumptions? Or yeah, could you just share a little bit your experience with that for sure. moving away from curing to those what was probably more realistic goal? Yeah. I had a patient one time, um, she was um, a grandmother caring for two grandchildren. Her, their daughter was, uh, I think she was in prison. And so the uh, husband and wife, they had taken in these grandchildren and were taking care of them. Anyway, she had terminal cancer. She was in hospice. And I had a conversation with her one time. And she basically said, I don't think I'm... I'm ready to die. Hmm. And so we talked about that and, and spiritually, and, and that wasn't an issue. She, she was, felt she was okay with the Lord. And we're, but what the issue was, um, uh, I don't think I'm ready to leave these kids. And, and uh, we got to talk about, well, what you can hope for. Hmm. She's not hoping that she's going to get cured, but let's change the focus of hope. Hope that um, 
your husband's going to be a fantastic father to these kids, mm-hmm. as he already was. That wasn't an issue. Um, that the kids uh, find comfort after she dies. And so a lot of times, um, you know, a lot of times you'll hear people say, we've given up hope. Mm-hmm. Well, usually that means giving up hope that I'm not going to die. Okay. And that was the only thing they're hoping for. But I, as a chaplain, often will say, well, let's talk about what we can hope for. Interesting. Uh, that your pain can be eased, that um, you can reconcile with your brother who you've been estranged from, um, and that your family will be taken care of after you die. So uh, it, it's, it's, it's changing the focus. It's, uh, I think sometimes we, we just think the only thing God wants is for my, par- my mother to be healed and, you know, to go on living. Well, it's interesting. If that's God's intent for everybody, why does everybody die? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. um, I don't want a deep theological thing about the fall or whatever, yeah. but right. uh, but it's the world we're living in. Everybody does die. Hmm. And so what can we hope for in the midst of the fact that they're dying? Hmm. That's good. Good word. So how did... So how do people begin to have these conversations? You know, it's the idea that, hey, I want to sit down with a loved one, um, or maybe it's the loved one that's sick that's listening into this, and they want to have these conversations with their their family. How do they begin? And your book does a great job of structuring that, giving language for it. But it also takes some courage to say, because it can feel awkward. You know, those first 30 seconds of awkwardness, um, uh, Sadie Robertson from Duck Dynasty fame. She used it a different thing, but <laughs> get get. She talks about it in in relationships. But it is those thir- if you can get through those thirty seconds, forty five seconds of this is an awkward conversation, an un- uncomfortable conversation. Um, at least for me, um, it's uncomfortable. You get over that. You're really glad you, you you're having the conversation. But this is an encouragement or or some wisdom because it sounds like you've had this conversation many many times. Um, but for the people listening in, whether they're the person that's sick or they're the family would love to have this conversation with somebody who's not doing well, how can they go through that and not come off as calloused or hard-hearted or um, be, or how do they get through that fear of feeling like they're being hard-hearted by asking some of these questions? Um, yeah. Does, does that make sense, Hank? Sure. Oh, totally. Yeah. It, it, yeah. It's like sometimes it's the elephant in the room, yes. you know, uh, yeah. Mom is clearly dying, and nobody's talking about it. Yeah. Um, and you know, one thing people have a fear—it's—it's it's a weird thing that um, if we talk about dying, she'll that'll make her die. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and my thing is, they're dying anyway, whether you talk about it or not. You're not that powerful to uh, <laughs> to make somebody die. By your conversation, so um, there are several ways. One, uh, uh, just shameless self-promotion, but as you mentioned, the, the, having that book, yeah. uh, my book in in hand, say, hey, uh, you know, if you're the patient and you have the book, it says, "Oh, this was given to me." Yeah. I, I want to talk about some of the things that are in here. So it, mm. it's it's like somebody else is bringing up the topic, exactly, and yeah. and and. Um, Another time to talk about these things, a lot of people do estate planning and do living wills and 
and durable power of attorney for health care, things like that. That's another opportunity saying, all right, I want to set your kids down. Here's what I put in my living will. Yeah. Um, you know, that might be years before it's actually gone in. But then when the person gets sick, they say, remember, we had that conversation about my living will. Uh, I want to I want to talk to you all about that again. Mm. So. Um, so, yeah, you, you can put it off on somebody else. It's their fault we're talking about this. But, <laughs> um, uh, but you know, it, and a lot is dependent on just how this family has related over yeah. the years. Yeah. Uh, we, we, I had a, had a patient in hospice one time, and, and uh, we were told to, when we visit the house, to take off our hospice pins because the the patient, the husband, the wife didn't want the husband, the patient, to know that he was in hospice, which hmm. is a hor- horrible thing to say, but we obeyed. Yeah. And uh, me being a guest in their room, I took my pen off and I went in and I first talked to the wife in the uh, living room and the husband was back in the bedroom. And uh, I said, what's this about us taking our uh, hospice pens off? Uh, does your husband know he's dying? And uh, she says, oh, yeah, he knows he's dying. And I said, well, how do you know he knows he's dying? And, hmm. and she said, well, he asked me one time. And I said, what did you say? I, I said, not while I'm around. Wow. And I said to her, I said, you know, what if you had said to him, yeah, you are dying. And I'm so sad. And we've had a wonderful marriage. You've been a great husband. And I'm going to miss you terribly. We'll be okay. We're going to be able to do it. And she said, you know, that would be too hard. Hmm. And bless his heart, the guy died five days later while she was out at the grocery store. Wow. Not while I'm around. So he took her literally and, and yeah. took that egg. So the point is, um, yeah, it's hard. These conversations can be hard. But, um, you know, there's all kinds of ways of starting them. I mean, you know, it's... I saw a story on the news the other day about this person who was dying, and it made me think about that, Mom. What are your thoughts on this type of stuff? Hmm. So, no, it's good. So, yeah, uh, um, it's you just have to do it. Yeah, and you mentioned in in there sometimes um, relationships, right? So you're coming into these conversations sometimes. Families are very, very healthy, and everyone loves each other. Everyone gets along. They have they've never been in a fight, um, and uh, you know they're on TV. Um, but you know the realities of every family. There's dynamics in those families. Any words of wisdom on how to navigate? They're all different, um, but at the same time, words of wisdom on how to navigate. Maybe when the family doesn't agree, is that is that is that fair? It's very fair question, and it's very tough. Um, uh, number one is to try to discern what the patient would want. If you're, okay. let's say, there's the patient's non-responsive, and the family's having to decide whether to do uh, a no CPR order or not, or let's say withdraw them off of a ventilator or not. So if you can get the family talking about, well, what would dad want in this? If he could sit here and talk to us about this, what do you think he would want? Now, there may be a little legitimate disagreement among the family members about what dad would want. You know, dad was a fighter. He didn't want us to keep fighting (laughs) until the very end. And 
the other ones say, well, Deb hates the idea of machinery keeping him alive. So this is the same family looking at. So right. that might not solve it. But um, I have a friend um, who was a, a hospital chaplain for years, and he, he would tell me sometimes he would talk to a family, and, and uh, they, he would ask them, well, what would your father want? And he, they, they said, well, you, uh, uh, he, he wouldn't want to be on this ventilator. And he would say to him, sounds like your father's already made his decision. The question is whether you're going to honor that or not. Hmm. So that's one one thing is is to to try to do what the um, patient would want. The other thing is then, of course, sometimes it just takes time. I mean, I saw families disagreeing on the treatment plan, and you know the other siblings. You know, they just kind of well, we just have to wait. You know, Joe will come along, but uh, uh, give him some time. And usually as the patient declines, most people get on the same page. Yeah. But it, it it can be, and it can be ugly, uh, yeah. sadly. Uh, it really can. Hmm. You mentioned in there with, with kind of that, it kind of brings to this question I wanted to ask you about withholding and withdrawing. Because um, you mentioned in there about withholding treatment or, or moving away from that. Can you share the tension? Because that's, I had never, you know, it had been maybe in my mind. Um, but you, once again, you've given language and structure around to have a conversation. And maybe some of the tension points between withholding and withdrawing and some of the, uh, could you share a little bit about those? Sure. Yeah. For example, um, a, a feeding tube. Um we know, um, for example, with dementia patients, they don't do any good. Uh, dementia patients, towards the end of their disease, have eating problems, and sometimes they get feeding tubes. It's, it's uh, fortunately nowadays it's less and less happening. But, um, but the, so the decision to not put a feeding tube in it can be difficult. Yeah, but you're allowing a natural process to occur where their eating problems just get get worse that's withholding but let's say you had decided to start the feeding tube and the patient they you know, now are being kept alive on this feeding tube and you're trying to decide to withdraw it and so now we're talking about does it feel like I'm killing the patient if I withdraw the treatment. Whereas before, withholding it, I'm not killing the patient. They're dying from this disease. Yeah. And it, it's and this is what I try to tell people as they're dealing with withdrawing treatment, yeah. is you're not killing the patient. You're allowing a natural disease process to run its natural course. Mm. So people on ventilators stopping that people on dialysis stopping that uh, people on uh, feeding tubes stopping that all that stuff you withdraw those things you're allowing a natural death to occur mm. and you're not killing the patient and that's you know sometimes people kind of have to get over get past yeah. that that problem yeah it's a good word 
I got two more questions for you. Um, you've talked, I've, we've, I've circled around, but I want to come back. You talked about treatment options. What are some, some key ones that you think that people should have? They're having discussions about end of life. You've mentioned CPR. Maybe we, you could share a little bit about the importance yeah, okay. of having that conversation. Um, yeah, uh, real quick. There are basically four most common decisions. CPR, fitting tube or hydration, uh, hospice, and uh, hospitalization. So um, the CPR, it it actually doesn't work that often. (laughs) Not like on TV. Um, So um, it actually in many ways is a very easy one when someone has a serious illness, uh, multiple things going on. It just doesn't work uh, in general. And um, so to... Um, you have to have an order from a doc not to do the CPR. So that that's a conversation you do need to have ahead of time, and you can get that order on a chart for a patient. The feeding tube, um, feeding tubes can be really helpful to a lot of patients. Um, a stroke patient sometimes can't swallow right after the stroke. They get the feeding tube, they learn to swallow again, the tube comes out and they eat naturally. Um, some patients, I had a throat cancer patient one time had a feeding tube and he was in hospice. He wasn't trying to get the thing, cancer cured anymore, but he was able to live at home and then yeah. several times a day he poured a can of insure down his feeding tube. So uh, that helps a lot of people. But uh, as I already mentioned, dementia patients, it does not help uh, without going into details. It just doesn't. Uh, yeah. So that, there's no reason to put a feeding tube in an advanced dementia patient. Just continue to hand feed them, careful yeah. hand feeding. The um, more difficult cases are when the, what sometimes is called a persistent vegetative state. This would be the famous cases in the U.S., the Karen Quinlan case and the uh, Nancy Krizan case where um, the patient is non-responsive. They're, they're not brain dead, but they are... Uh, and a severe cognitive impairment and are not going to get better. And so uh, I've been involved with several cases of families withdrawing treatment of feeding tube like this. And um, so that's uh, back on that withdrawing thing. So the feeding tubes. Um, hospitalization. Um, hospitalization is an aggressive treatment at many times, especially you put somebody in the ICU. Okay. And so uh, let's say you're caring for somebody at home. Um, they're getting sick. They're under, let's say they're under hospice care. Um, and um, so the goal would be maybe just to keep them at home and not put them into the hospital. Same thing with nursing home and assisted living patients. You might make the decision not to be hospitalized Hmm. and just take care of me at the nursing home or at the assisted living, you know, control my pain. So that's the hospitalization question. Um, And it it does, it it is, ICU is considered an aggressive, I mean, that's what we want. I mean, you you go to ICU to try to keep people from dying. But if they're dying, maybe... You want to be somewhere else. And that last decision is, of course, uh, shifting to a comfort care only or hospice approach at the end of life. And, um, you know, any disease, almost all our diseases, uh, well, all our diseases, we know what the end of life uh, trajectory is. And um, 
like I said, in, in the U.S., the um, Medicare hospice benefit, the doc says, needs to say you, you have six months or left to live. Yeah. Sadly, a lot of people don't go in the hospice till the last few days. Uh, and it's best if you can be in there weeks, if not months, to get to know the hospice team, the hospice team to get to know you and to get to know the needs of the patient, to get the pain under control, get the equipment into the home. But um, a lot of times people just put it off till the last two days before they die. And it's it's not much good at that point. Mm -hmm. So those are the the four main decisions. um, uh, I mentioned Alice's ventilator support. Things like that are, are other decisions people might have to make, but it's they're all kind of, kind of similar of recognizing that we're at the end of life and we're just allowing a natural death to occur by not putting on the vent or not doing Dallas or things like that. One last question for you. Um, you share and you share a poem in your in the book about the learning the difference between giving up, letting go, and letting be. Um, yeah. Honestly, I found this. It's very, it's, it's, it's a touching poem, but I think that is encapsulating for me. It was encapsulating a lot of this discussion because you feel like having the discussion you're, you're giving up um, or you're maybe prematurely letting go, but would you unpack that? Maybe share it. Um, yeah. It was, it was really, really touching. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah. I, in my book, the 1994 edition of my book, I started talking about giving up and letting go. And at the time, I had a friend who was a psychotherapist, and she had a patient uh, who had AIDS. Now, this was uh, in the early 90s uh, when all AIDS patients were dying. Fortunately, that's not happening anymore. But um, anyway... um, so she she said told me one of my patients said I finally learned the difference between giving up and letting go. Hmm. And I thought about that I started writing the poem giving up and letting go. And in my 2001 edition of the book I published the poem as that with just giving up and letting go. And when I was working on the draft of the book I sent it out to people for comments and I got a woman who, a doctor who helped me a lot, Joanne Lynn, she wrote, she sent me the, my manuscript back. This was when everything was done on paper. And she <laughs> wrote in the margin, giving up and letting go, she says, Hank, I've stopped talking to, pe- stopped talking to people about letting go, and now I've changed to calling, telling them to let things be. Hmm. Well, I was ready to go to press, it was my very popular poem, and I put it in as that, but I never forgot what she said. Yeah. So in the 2009 edition of the book, I changed it to what you see now, yeah. which is giving up, letting go, and letting be. Well, um, I don't know if you're ready, but you want me to read it as, as a closing prayer? That would that would be excellent. That would be excellent. Okay. Well, you just think of this as, as a prayer you can say to the Lord and uh, about giving up, letting go letting be. Giving up implies a struggle. Letting go implies a partnership. Letting be implies, in reality, there is nothing that separates. Giving up says there is something to lose. Letting go says there is something to gain. Letting be says it doesn't matter. Giving up dreads the future. Letting go looks forward to the future. 
Letting be accepts the present as the only moment I ever have. Giving up lives out of fear. Letting go lives out of grace and trust. Letting be just lives. Giving up is defeat at the hands of suffering. Letting go is victory over suffering. Letting be knows suffering is often in my own mind in the first place. Giving up is unwillingly yielding control to forces beyond myself. Letting go is choosing to yield to forces beyond myself. Letting be acknowledges that control and choices can be illusions. Giving up believes that God is to be feared. Letting go trusts in God to care for me. Letting be never asks the question. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Hank.